1: Hello, you're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week we ask, what's the next great leap for education?
2: If we stay on the current track, then in 2030, there will be 1.6 billion young people on the planet and around half of them without even basic secondary level skills.
1: Whether greater value should be placed on students' acquisition of soft skills.
3: To acquire the habit of kindness, not just the cognitive knowledge that kindness matters.
1: And if future education methods need to be shaped around the rise of artificial intelligence.
4: Where's artificial intelligence and where's human intelligence and what's the connection between the two, I think will be an interesting question in the future.
1: All across the world, the efficacy of education is being challenged by the rise of technology and digital innovation. No longer can students rely on academic prowess alone. Greater importance is being placed on people's skills and competencies. It's forcing institutions to better equip their pupils for work environments they're going to go into in the future. And might we even persuade children to enjoy being educated a bit more? Earlier this month, I attended the Brookings Institution's Centre for Universal Education event. It's their annual research and policy symposium, and it was held this year in Utah at the Powder Mountain Summit. We've been locked up for a couple of days here in the mountains in Utah, talking about learning, not so much about education reform, but learning itself – what do we need to do differently? What are the best examples in the world of interesting learning? And one of the big themes has been that actually we don't know so much about why people don't learn as well as they should and perhaps we measure the wrong things. Hosting the academics, policymakers, and researchers in attendance was Rebecca Winthrop. She's Senior Fellow and Director of Universal Education for the
5: Brookings Institution. For her, the big word of the conference was leapfrog. We want to leapfrog in education because there are some great schools around the world in every country where kids are getting the full breadth of skills they need but mostly most kids are not getting the skills they need to be successful in the future and we want to speed up the pace of change. For example in developing countries it's going to take at least a hundred years for the average student to catch up in reading science and maths to the average student in the rich countries or the developed world. And that's not something that's actually so far off for rich countries either. There's a data point in the United States where it's gonna take 60 years for young kids in poor communities to be at the school readiness level of kids in richer communities. What
1: are you trying to do? And would you be happy if you felt you were making progress to a point that we might call around 2017, if you were looking back in 30 years and finding out that the skills that we needed were completely different?
5: It's a really good question, and I certainly am quite interested in moving the leapfrog discussion into the policy space. The number one thing for the policy audience is to understand that Young kids need a broad set of skills because we are not exactly sure how society is going to look. We're not exactly sure the problems that they're going to have to solve. So in many ways, we need them to be good at their maths, and we need them to be good at history, and we need them to be good readers. But we also need them to be agile and collaborative and creative and be empathetic to others and to build networks. And all of those other things are things that we... At least in the current global education space, that is the consensus that we need this broad set of skills.
1: What about marking each other's homework? Rebecca believes peer learning needs to be given a far stronger place in today's education systems.
5: One of the things that I really thought was fascinating from the contribution of the kids at the conference was that they all loved, when asked about some of their favourite teachers or who would they like to be their teacher, they all loved learning from other children. There was a 13-year-old girl who was involved in teaching one of the kids piano, and that was her favorite teacher. One of the other little kids said he'd really like his brother to be his math teacher. And I think this idea of children teaching other kids is probably greatly untapped and could be a potential leapfrog strategy for all of us.
1: We sometimes forget the child when we think about educating children. Jordan Shapiro, Senior Fellow at the Joan Gantz Cooney Centre at Sesame Workshop, researches what childhood might look like in the future.
0: I go to lots of education conferences and we often talk about soft skills and we talk about those social skills like collaboration and how to make sure that people can interact with each other and the argument for why that's a good idea is always individual achievement and I've always thought this is sort of a crazy idea. We need to teach our kids to collaborate so that they can be better competitive individuals than someone else. Something's out of joint there. I want to see us build school systems, families, childhood experiences that are all about rewarding children for working with each other, for getting along with each other, for solving conflict with each other. I thought it was interesting what the kids said. We asked them a lot about what they learn in school versus what they learn at home versus what they learn from formal teachers and what they learn from friends or just older kids. And I noticed that all of the things they said they learned from formal teachers were formal subjects. And when we asked what you learned from your friends or older people or your siblings, what we got was the social stuff. Questions about how to deal with bullies, how to interact with other kids. Now, obviously, their teachers are teaching them those things all the time also. So it was interesting to hear that their experience of school is only the boring stuff or what they consider the boring stuff.
6: My name is Fernando Riemers. I'm a professor of education at Harvard University and I direct the Global Education Innovation Initiative.
1: Fernando believes there are three reasons that explain why current school systems prevent children from developing holistically.
6: One is that this is not yet a shared goal of all the stakeholders that need to collaborate. Instead, the shared goal focuses on a very narrow set of cognitive capacities around the basic literacies. The second barrier is that the various processes and structures that form this education system are not aligned with this goal. So the examination system tends to emphasize much more cognitive skills than the social skills or the character development which are very important. Similarly, teacher professional development is very often not aligned with this goal. And the third more important barrier is that we're not learning sufficiently out of the innovations that are happening at small and medium scale around the world. To a great extent, 21st century education, education of of the whole child, does not need to be invented. It has already been invented by thousands of innovators around the world. And what we need to do is learn from them. And I think in that respect, there are two schools of thought as to what needs to happen going forward. One says we need to transform our systems incrementally to better align them with the education of the whole child. An alternative school of thought says we have to scrap what we have and start anew. We need to disrupt the system. I think it's important to think in a disciplined way about where do we need to improve incrementally and where do we need to disrupt.
1: Not everyone agrees. One of them is Luis Crouch of the Research Triangle Institute.
3: I don't know that it's up to us to begin with. I think whether there is disruption and how much disruption there is is going to depend on hundreds of ministries of education, thousands of NGOs. So I think the belief that a sort of elite team of intellectuals could decide for the world, you know, how much disruption there should or should not be is itself a bit of a problem.
1: Luis has his own method for holistic education.
3: The acquisition of some of these skills is not simply a matter of explaining to the child the importance of these skills, that is important, but it's also a matter of either allowing or forcing, maybe a little bit of both, the child to acquire daily practice in these skills. In other words, courtesy and kindness are not just a matter of realizing the importance of courtesy and kindness, it's a matter of practicing courtesy and kindness because if you do that, A, it becomes easier for you, and B, when you practice courtesy and kindness, typically the world reacts in kind. In a discussion with some Peruvian parents, I asked, how would you define if your child is educated? And one of the parents said, if my child stands up for the elderly in the bus. And the thinking around that is, You can explain to a child why that's important, but it's also important for that kind of reaction of a child to become habitual.
1: To my mind, what was intriguing about this conference is that it discussed the improvement of education policies in both the developed and the developing world. And one of the subjects we gave a lot of time to would be how children across the world might have learning opportunities to build prosperous and well-balanced societies. Femi Longa is co-founder of the Co-Creation Hub in Nigeria, and I asked him whether what's relevant to one country can be applicable to another of a very different socioeconomic status.
7: I don't think so. The real purpose for education in developing countries is social mobility. The rest of the world, I think most of those basic needs have been taken care of, and now we're looking at a more self actualization larger grand scale. How does education affect climate change? How are we teaching empathy? I think empathy is, is, is good, it's, it's critical, but the question the parent in Africa is asking is, how is it going to get you a job and how is it going to make you live a better life?
1: So I understand the difference, and I can see that a lot of people sitting around talking about whether they're teaching enough empathy might not seem to be the biggest problem that you face or you're trying to resolve. But then... In that sense, well, why be here at all? What do you think was relevant from anything you heard on how learning should develop?
7: One of the big things we've talked about is how AI and automation is going to take away jobs. Well, the bulk of those jobs are going to be jobs that are in developing countries. In Nigeria, we should be thinking about where do we see the whole country evolving? Are we evolving to be where the UK, the US is today? Or are we leapfrogging and seeing where they're going to be in 20 years and seeing how we can be at par with them? And what's the role of technology and mobile phones and the internet as tools that we can use in that whole education process?
1: And his country is leaping forward with technological innovation.
7: At the co-creation Hub a few years ago, we realized in Nigeria that the pass rate for terminal exams for high school kids was quite low what we did was we called the uh, school administrators, called teachers, called students, called software developers into a room to try and understand what's the reason for this kind of problem. One of the things that came out was that the way we were teaching in the high school was boring and wasn't engaging kids. And what they've done is they've taken the high school curriculum and turned it into a mobile trivia quiz. So the kids think they are playing a game, but while playing the game, they're actually revising what they learned in school. Consistently, the kids who played the game, the better in the classroom.
1: The key to that success was collaboration between all levels of the education sector.
7: Rather than the administrators blaming the schools and the schools blaming the parents and the parents blaming the teachers and all that blame, what if we pushed all that aside and said, well, our common outcome is these kids should do well. And the minute we came to that common outcome, it was possible for us to build solutions that made that happen.
1: Nigeria is one country embracing digital tools in education. But the pace of change in artificial intelligence poses challenges everywhere. Philip Schmidt, who's Director of Learning Innovation at the MIT Media Lab, explains.
4: One of the things that's definitely happening is we have to figure out what to do about artificial intelligence. And we don't have... A strategy. Like the question is, right now, you learn everything, you have to memorize everything. It's almost like when you're done, you end up on the top of a mountain with the number two pencil, and you need to have all the knowledge in your head to solve all of the problems that you might possibly encounter. And in the future, many more of the things that we're storing in our heads now are going to be done by machines, both threatening our jobs, but also letting us do things that we can't do right now, which is analyze amazing amounts of data, find new insights. There is an interesting question, which is we see a lot of low engagement in schools. We see the technology introduction into schools is hard. And yet on the other side, we see millions and millions of kids using things like Minecraft or Scratch or learning on YouTube. And I think there's this disconnect between when we talk about education and technology we always talk about schools and measurements and assessments and it's hard and slow and then if we just turned our heads halfway to the side we would see millions of kids happily learning with each other and thriving. Okay, this time I disagree.
1: The man in disagreement is Pierre Dillenburg. Pierre is a leading edtech specialist at the École Polytechnique Fédérale in Lausanne.
8: Schools are not effective. All kids spend nine years in schools, compulsory school. Yesterday, people from Brookings showed some data that in high-income countries, thirty percent of the kids finish compulsory school without the basic skills, even in high-income countries. Do you imagine that after nine years of compulsory school, 30% of the kids end up without basic skills? Is that efficient?
1: These topics can sound a bit dry and technical but I was fascinated by the way that such lively debates kept breaking out about what we're trying to do and Pierre put forward an alternative solution for the improvement of education.
8: I would take teachers out of school for one year every five years, just doing something completely different to boost the energy. It's a very tough job doing it again and again and again. In my university, we offered high school teachers to come for a semester, not to take pedagogy class. So they could be ski teachers, they could be mosquito farmers. They, they can do anything, bringing fresh air in the school, especially thinking about one generation. The AI revolution, we don't know how many jobs will be killed, how many jobs will be created. The optimistic people say will be balanced, I'm not so optimistic. So we we'll have a generation, that's my generation, of people over 50 that cannot adapt to the digital revolution. And what about bringing them to school? Millions of people available to help school, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience. So I would say, if I was God, I would ask all these guys to come to schools and help.
4: I agree with you. And actually, I would go further. I think creating more space for teachers to teach things that they are interested in and creating more space for children to learn things that they're interested in and inspiring children I think that would be my biggest wish and I think technology can really help with that because it lets you connect to a huge amount of things that you might be interested in that maybe there's no one in your classroom who's interested in the same thing or maybe you don't have a role model and you can find these things now online
1: beyond the researchers the academics and the digital innovators though are the policymakers they have to sift through these suggestions and often take a gamble on the practices they think will be needed by students years ahead from now then they have to get the electorate to go along with it Jim Knight is a former Labour Education Minister in Britain, now a member of the House of Lords and Chief Education Advisor at TES.com. I asked him if he believes current policymakers are on the right track.
9: I struggle to have faith that we're on the right track at the moment because politics, public policy always finds it difficult to keep up with the pace of change that's going on in the world of business driven by Combinations of technology, longevity, globalisation. The pace feels much quicker than it's ever felt.
1: In particular, Jim had a warning from experience about giving technology to teachers without due preparation.
9: I was schools minister for a year for Tony Blair and then managed to survive through to two years working for Gordon Brown in the same role. And we were guilty of a certain benign naivety where we thought that we could give, for example, technology like interactive whiteboards to teachers across the country spending a lot of public money and that they would intuitively, instinctively manage to be able to use them and change their pedagogy and get really good return on investment. Some of the things we did well were investing in school leadership and in paying teachers more, but we didn't quite crack changing the perception of teachers so that we can build their professionalism and their trust in teachers which is at its heart what I think the big challenge is for us now globally is how can we create enough teachers to lead learning that we respect enough so that good people want to be teachers yes we will develop and train them but not on the basis that they're all bad but on the basis that we trust them and want to get them even better.
0: He
1: was joined by Julia Gillard, former Australian Prime Minister. I agree with Jim's
2: point that I think we need to take education technology seriously, but it needs to be included in a properly planned system and certainly in developing country contexts there have been some naive attempts to have technology solutions when we're talking about nations where many schools are beyond the reach of electricity or at least reliable connectivity. In what I've seen so far I actually think in developing country contexts having technology for the teachers has been more powerful in many ways than aspiring to have technology in the hands of every student.
1: Which school system do you admire? And even if it has a pocket of innovation, you could... Highlight that. I think in many
2: ways the things that warm my heart are the things that I see in developing countries. When I can go to a school in Malawi, a hundred kids a class, classrooms are made out of handmade bricks because the community built them, and I can meet with a mothers club that is working to try and keep adolescent girls in school by doing things like looking after the children of those adolescent girls then it's that, that sort of local innovation of mothers wanting to support the education journey of their daughters and other people's daughters that
1: really impresses me. The tools that will make the greatest difference in reshaping the future of education are unpredictable. Teachers, policymakers, innovators, they all need to choose the leaps they're prepared to take and be prepared to change course if the evidence changes. But let's leave the last word to the Brookings Institution's Rebecca Winthrop. Was anything that surprised you or contradictions perhaps that came up?
5: One of them is the pivotal, pivotal role that parents play in enabling any type of rapid acceleration of progress or any type of massive transformation of education. And of course that sounds silly. Why wasn't I thinking about that? But You have to understand in the policy space, we spend lots of time thinking about funders and politicians, but really what came out very strongly was that if parents do not support a vision of education, if they don't understand when they go to a school what kids are doing, if it looks incredibly different, they'll get nervous. And they will rise up and we got lots of examples from some of the ministers around the table at the conference of just that happening and them having to roll back reforms that were potentially quite powerful for leapfrogging the system forward because the parents didn't quite understand what was happening and it was probably a failure on the government side to not explain it well. We'd also like to hear
1: your views on the great education debate. Which solutions you heard about stand out for you, or perhaps you have your own to offer? Do let us know. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter, and you can send us emails to radio at That's it from this week's programme. In London, just back from Utah, this is The Economist.